go. Oh boy. <laughs> oh my god. Uh, hello? 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 Here's a Japanese sandman Sneaking on with a duo Just an old second handman Hello and welcome to the Good Friends of Jackson Elias, a regular podcast about Call of Cthulhu, horror films, and horror gaming in general. I'm Paul Fricker. I'm Scott Dalwood. And I'm Matt Sanderson. And this episode, we're discussing the 2022 American horror film, Barbarian. Before we get into all that barbarous stuff, what is going on? We now have dates for the next weekend with good friends. This, of course, is the online convention that is organised by our lovely listeners on our Discord server. And the convention itself will be taking place this year, that, that is 2023, if you are listening in the distant future, over the weekend of the 7th to the 9th of July. Of course, the whole process kicks off before then. We have GM signups running between the 2nd and the 15th of June, if you'd like to offer some games. Then players will be able to sign up to these games between the 23rd and the 29th of June. There are full details on our website, blasphemoustomes.com. I'll put a link in the show notes. And also on our Discord server again, I shall put a link in the show notes. Issue 11 of the Blasphemous Tome is one step close to landing on your doorsteps. And I am in the process, as we record this, of writing a scenario for the term. Well, I say writing a scenario. It's a scenario I've been running at conventions for 15 years and have never actually got around to writing up. But it's a scenario called Blackshade, set in a Victorian, not quite asylum, but one of these strange kind of Victorian places where they used to place... Under the guise of mental health, basically women who were considered embarrassments to their families. And the player characters are all patients in the, the asylum. And there are strange experiments going on involving electricity. You know, it sounds such a wholesome, lovely, uh, fun for all the family setting. Why am I not surprised that you chose something like that, Scott? <laughs> it's been comparatively... I was about to say light-hearted, but I guess light-hearted for one of my scenarios when I've run it. There definitely seems to be plenty of opportunity for hijinks and mischief and stuff like that. But at the same time, yeah, there, there are some nasty bits. Because, of course, there are. And by the time this episode goes out, so should the reprint of the Blasphemous Tome, issue 4B. This, is, uh, this was previously only available as a PDF when we originally released it. It's not been available for some years, but now we've re-released it and Matt has laid it all out afresh in colour, or some of it's in colour. Uh, <laughs> uh, so that's going to be available now as a PDF and as a print-on-demand through drive-thru. And if you're a backer of the show on $3 or above, until the end of this month, that being April 2023, you can get a discount code to get the print-on-demand version for around cost price. And all our backers on $3 above can get access to discount codes to get a whole bunch of print-on-demand tomes. And indeed, anyone who backs us now has access to about, mm, probably about nine different tomes uh, on PDF as soon as they subscribe. And Paul, I understand you've been going through our podcast reviews and have struck gold. I thought we're fairly light on news this time. Let's read a, a review to let people know the kind of thing we do. And I found this one, well, in the interest of balance, you know, not wishing to be immodest, but, you know, we got quite a lot of five-star reviews, got on us. But also, we have a one-star review from Jedi Yaris, who says, Not worth the listen. It's like listening to three basement-dwelling nerds wang on about absolutely boring ideas. That's not us. Three basement-dwelling nerds. <laughs> I haven't even got a basement. I'd love a basement. I could store more books down there. 
Well, Scott and I have basements. Yeah, I've got a basement. I actually quite fancy the idea of moving into it. Why haven't I done that? They continue. In the vein of all things Lovecraftian, these English lobsters prattle on about an American. You lost, mate. Is he still reliving the American Revolutionary War? I'm not quite (laughs) sure what he's referring to. Again, they continue. American literary people can be enjoyed by anyone, but these three hosts come off it, man. I know I'm pretty old, but I'm not old enough to have actually lost the Revolutionary War. Well, as a nation, I guess we did. You just accept it, Scott. We lost. (laughs) Just move on, all right? (laughs) The thing I resent the most is being compared to shellfish. I hate fish, and to be called a lobster, that's just, oh, wait until I get this pincer where the sun don't shine, mate. I mean, it goes with your apparel at the moment. You've kind of got a lobster-coloured, is that a... (laughs) bathrobe what is that yeah it's, it's called any layer i can because my house is freezing at the minute i'm sat here in a white <laughs> shirt i've got my red dressing gown over the top of that and then below that you can't see on the uh camera we don't want to know this <laughs> well i'm wrapped up in a load of blankets as well so yeah I, i'm wrapped up in anything and everything i can to keep warm so anyway we welcome all reviews good bad indifferent reviews are welcome you know express your opinion and uh if you want to write a review please Go ahead. We That's uh, marvellous. Especially if you have any other crustaceans you'd like to compare us to. But I want a basement. And now on to our main topic, Barbarian. Barbarian is the first feature film from American writer and director Zach Krieger. Hopefully I pronounced his name right there. I think it's Krieger. That too. All right, so Zach Krieger. Craig had previously been known as one of the founders of The Whitest Kids You Know. I've never heard of it. A comedy troupe who had a long-running sketch show on TV. I'll take your word for it. A lot of their sketches are on YouTube, and they're actually really quite funny. Tragically, one of the other founder members died uh, recently, just as I think they were reviving their careers they (laughs) like all good people they started an rpg actual play channel as well where they were doing DD live streams but all that's come to a halt as uh one of the other members of the troupe yeah had an accident where apparently he fell off his balcony and died Hmm. despite having recognizable stars like georgina campbell bill skarsgård and justin long barbarian was a fairly small budget film It made back at least 10 times its $4 million budget at the box office. Though the exteriors were shot in the Brightmoor district of Detroit, and we'll get back to that later, Barbarian, or at least the interiors of it, was largely filmed in Bulgaria in Sofia. If you're wondering why the film is called Barbarian, trust me, I was wondering why this for a long time. Yeah. (laughs) This was Craig's placeholder title for the script. In the end, he couldn't think of anything better. I assume we can all relate to this. Hell yes. Hell for sure. Yeah. Honestly, the number of placeholders I've used in things I've written as titles for scenarios or NPC names, monster names, names of organisations, names of books, I just put down the first stupid shit I can most of the time, just so I've got something there. And then half the time, that's just what stays there. And there's me who agonises about what to call something for a hell of a long time, trying to think of some cunning wordplay or some uh, very succinct word that has encapsulates the theme of my scenario. No, I'll just put a random title in. <laughs> While there was some marketing, a lot of the film's success seems to be down to word of mouth. It became something of a meme that you had to go and see it without knowing anything about the plot. So, of course... We're going to spoil the hell out of it. So, yes, be warned. If you're going to see this, well, if you think you might enjoy this and, you know, until you see it, you don't know, really. So <laughs> what do you do about that? We are going to we are going to um, spoil it. And I'm kind of glad that nobody spoiled it for me because all this hype totally went over my head and I, I didn't I wasn't aware of any of it until a friend mentioned the film. So I just watched it cold. I didn't know anything about it at all. But this was a real thing on the internet for a while. I kept seeing it on Twitter. I kept seeing it on other social media, on Reddit. Basically, anywhere where people were talking about horror films, it was, oh, yeah, there's this new film out, Barbarian. You have to go and see it without knowing anything about it. And I did wonder how that started. 
I mean, it really does, now that I think about it, seem like the kind of very deliberate viral marketing that a savvy media firm would come up with. A, it's cheap because, you know, starting a meme, getting it going by word of mouth. And Mm. B, it's actually really quite cunning if you think about it, because, I mean, not only does it mean you're going in unspoiled, but it means you've built up these expectations that you're going to see something really new, something really transgressive. And also that by not being told any of the details ahead of time, not even knowing the premise of the plot, then you don't hear anything that might put you off seeing it. If it doesn't sound like the kind of thing you you might like, then you don't know that before you go and see it. So I think it's a really canny bit of marketing and really quite a cynical one. I think it's not one of those films where there's like, I can tell you a big spoiler that is going to spoil the film. Like, you know, there's a big twist in it that you don't see coming. That, But there are there are surprises in the film oh, yeah. um, that, that go, oh, I didn't expect that to happen, you know, and there's kind of jumps and so on that, that I don't expect. But it's not like Sixth Sense or something where there's there's a big twist. No, it's more an unusual structure than an unusual story the story itself is about as bog standard as horror films get Mm. and we should offer some content warnings here this film deals with themes and elements of kidnapping rape incest and forced birth while we're not going to go into any explicit details obviously the film covers these things and we will mention them as they come up in the plot And now on to a synopsis of Barbarian. It's a rainy night, and our main lead, Tess, she arrives at this rental house in Brightmoor, which is in Detroit. A great tourist destination. They really (laughs) sell it with the opening shots. There's one working street light, and there's no lights on in the surrounding buildings. Now, I spoke to a friend of mine called Nate on our Discord server when this film came out. And Nate lives in Michigan, not in Detroit, but not too far away. And he was talking about his irritation with the way this was portrayed in the film, in that the Brightmoor district of Detroit is notorious for being run down. And sure enough, they did shoot there. But at the same time, he said that it sort of gives this picture that a lot of Detroit is like this and well there are rundown areas he said that this particular bit of extreme urban decay that we see here is really just like one city block but filmmakers keep going back to it and giving the idea that it's a much bigger thing than it is Tess finds that the house has been double booked via two different websites and a young man Keith is inside already Keith invites her inside and they unsuccessfully attempt to contact the rental agency. I think this is a great setup. You know, she turns up and the key box, the, the thing where you press the buttons and get the key, as you do with many like Airbnb places, it's like there's no key in it. So she, you know, it's pissing it down in rain. She calls up and then she goes back to her car and she looks back. So she assumes the place is vacant and she looks back and sees a light come on and there's somebody in there. And then she goes back to the door and knocks and there's already a guy there. Yeah. And it's kind of this un uncomfortable situation where she doesn't really know whether to go back to her car or to like he invites her in do i go in is he a murderer and and i think this is perhaps the best part of the film this opening and that building sense of suspicion and paranoia and i did read a little bit where zach Kreger was talking about how he'd basically started off with this idea he'd tried to write a different script and thrown it out and then started off with this idea just writing this scene and seeing where it went and how he'd been inspired by i can't remember the name of the book but he'd read a book basically that was about the various survival strategies that women have to use in social situations it's called the gift of fear by gavin de becker Right, yeah. He basically wanted to use these sort of strategies and these these cautious behaviours as the basis for the film. And I mean, that is very much why we see Tess behaving in such a, well, sensibly cautious manner to begin with. Yeah. And, but I mean, that 
very nicely sets up a tone of paranoia for the film, which I think ultimately the film fails to deliver on, but it's a nice setup. A convention means there are no vacancies at local hotels. Been there, done that, try getting a place in Indianapolis when Gen Con rolls around. Tess offers to leave, but Keith convinces her to stay rather than head off with nowhere to go, because all she'd be doing is just driving around on her own in the dark. Tess takes the only bedroom while Keith takes the sofa and uh, they get talking over a bottle of wine. And, and this, is, this is great as well because he like leaves the wine sealed. Uh, hey, uh, the laundry's still in wash. Um, uh, but I thought, um, well, I'm wide awake, so, so I, um, it's going to be a bit not. I thought I'm going to have some of this here wine. But I didn't want to open it before um, you got out of the shower because I, I know so you didn't drink your tea. And, would, well, I totally get that, by the way. I mean, you don't know me, and, and this is a really weird situation. It makes total sense. Um, but I thought that, um, you know, you might want some of this. But if I open it while you weren't here, that, um, that um, I'm, 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 I'm sorry, I'm rambling, Jesus Christ. Um, I thought you wouldn't want any if you didn't see me open it, so I waited. I'm good. Through the course of the conversation, we learn that Tess is in town for a job interview with a woman who's making a documentary about collectors of artists and musicians across Detroit who make use of vacant houses. Keith is a founding member of one such collective, a group of musicians, I believe, and is searching for a property the band can use. And this shared bonding improves the general mood. The pair finish off their bottle of wine and talk late into the night, eventually going to sleep. Tess wakes a little while later to find her room door open. Keith, he's asleep on the sofa having a nightmare. Tess wakes him and he denies opening the door. Tess goes back to bed and locks the door firmly behind her. There was a moment here when I thought, oh, wait a minute. It's not him. Is it her? Is she like the killer? Is she like turned up and just like pretended to be the innocent party here? But, you know, I was just trying to second guess. Also, as she comes out of her room in the night, when I first watched this, I thought I saw something and then I rewatched it and it's like in the background, the door to the cellar that we don't know about yet closes in the background mm. uh, okay it's very like blink and you miss it the next morning tess leaves the house and we get to see the surrounding neighborhood in daylight now and man it's a big <laughs> surprise this <laughs> is very different to what we might have thought we might have thought it wasn't great but it's like really bad area everything is overgrown the buildings are abandoned and dilapidated covered in graffiti including some ominously foreshadowing scrawl death from below yeah, I must say I missed that. But. No, I saw that the first time I watched it. I went, hang on a minute, that's plastered all over one wall and even oh, I can nice. read this. <laughs> yes. When you say this is dilapidated, I mean, every other house is effectively a ruin. There's mm. this one really well-maintained house, perfectly maintained house in the middle of it all, and then the rest of it, yeah, is completely derelict. Tess then heads off to her interview and arrives there. Everything goes well. But then the interviewer in conversation afterwards, learns that Tess is staying in Brightmoor and is a bit shocked by this and warns Tess to be careful there. Back at the house, a homeless man runs towards Tess as she enters. She makes it just inside just in time, but he bangs on the door telling her to get out of that house! She calls the police, which is a fantastic tactic I hear Scott recommends at every opportunity, but they are more than helpful in telling her that no one is available because they are not there to protect and serve at all. And this is about as classic a horror movie trope as you can get, that you can get out of the house this unreliable, crazy-looking mm. person warning you. I mean, I think the first time I remember noticing it was in possibly the first Friday the 13th film or one of the early Friday the 13th films, but it became a trope so much through the horror films of the 80s that it's been parodied over and over again. This is one of the first times in a long time I've seen it used unironically. Searching for toilet paper, Tess accidentally locks herself in the basement. Yeah, she goes down to the basement looking for toilet paper with a 
with a phone torch maybe i can't no, remember there's a light there is a light bulb down yes of course there's a light bulb down there but the basement door swings shut and she finds that she can't open it from inside so there she is stuck down in the basement and she's like searching around for some way to get out there is like a little uh high window in the basement that provides some daylight but mm. that's locked as well so she can't escape from there with you know without trying to break it and climb out maybe and she finds herself looking around on the shelves and uh there's these old kind of shelves and you know just clutter and stuff down in this basement it's not particularly remarkable she moves the stuff on the shelf and there's this bit of rope going into a hole in the wall so she's like well, that's weird. And so she pulls it, as you would, I guess. Yeah, well, my advice is don't, okay? If there's a little hole in the basement wall, like just like it's drilled, been drilled in there with a bit of rope coming through it, don't pull it. Because she pulls it and there's a click and a hidden door slowly swings open, revealing a lightless tunnel going on from the cellar. Tess does not react well to this, so she's clearly creeped out, and so she backs off, sits against the far wall of the cellar, and just looks down the tunnel, and nopes out of the whole thing, refuses to go down. But eventually, she realises she's stuck down there, there's no sign of Keith, and she messes around with a mirror, manages to get some light reflected mm. going down the corridor. This, to me, feels very much like some things I've been in in RPGs, where you perhaps want to try to have your characters behave sensibly, but you could play it out so that, yeah, perhaps Tess sits there passively until Keith comes home and then gets out of the cellar and then there's no problem. but. That's not going to be very interesting in either a game or a horror film. As a GM, you'd really want to sit there and sort of say, yeah, okay, but all right, you find a mirror, yeah, you get a bit of light going down there. Aren't you at all curious about what's down there? I mean, there's no sign from above. You don't know when Keith's coming back. You don't know if he's coming back. You might be trapped down here forever. That, that yeah. corridor might be your only way out of here. Are you just going to sit there? I just love her reaction where she just goes, nope. And is sat there <laughs> idling with this thing in vice. It's like the GM girl taunting her and tempting her for hours, waiting for her to finally bite. But she embraces her inner investigator and finally gets the plot going. She eventually goes down this lightless tunnel. And at just the very edge of the light, she finds this door to a room. And there's nothing ominous in here whatsoever. <laughs> there's a stained mattress on an old bed frame, a camcorder on a tripod, a dirty bucket. A bloody handprint on the wall. It's brilliant. It's got all the decor you want for a lovely room. It's yeah, it's it's a great little room, isn't it? Mm. Yeah. Very homey. Yeah. Keith arrives and frees the distressed Tess from the basement. So yeah, she she bangs on the the window and he comes over and I think they manage to leave it open or break it or something. And she explains what she found. Now She's sort of telling him in a panicked way, you know, we need to leave and get out of here. And he's like, well, what are you on about? You found an underground, you found a room down there with a bed and a camera in there. I mean, what's, that doesn't sound that bad. So he convinces her to wait for him and he's just going to go down and have a look. She agrees. So he goes down there, you know, he's going to go down there, come back up. He doesn't come back up. She waits for a bit. She calls for him. Nothing to be heard. So obviously she goes down there yeah before she left her phone up here but now she remembers and she uh takes her phone i.e light down with her down the steps once more calling out for keith and at the end of the corridor tess finds that there's another door at the very end this is sort of a secret hidden door that wasn't obvious it just looked like the end of the corridor when she was down there before but clearly keith would had how to open it and it reveals a flight of stairs heading down into darkness. She hears Keith somewhere down there in the dark and goes down. Oh, she's scared, but she goes down looking for him and she passes through a metal gate and finds, well, these empty cages, these animal cages. And as she heads on further down the corridor, she eventually stumbles across a rather frightened-looking Keith 
who says that someone else is down there with them. That corridor that she went along initially, the one that behind the, the secret door, mm. okay, I mean, I'd have probably gone along there for a look. But when she then finds another secret door at the end of the passage that leads down the step to where Keith is, I was like, fuck no, I'm not going down there. There's kind of like roughly hewn steps into yes. the earth in a tunnel heading down like at 45 degrees just into darkness. No, <laughs> okay, no, that's why there's a line in the sand there. That's it. But then, of course, yeah, right. So she hears this guy who's become her friend calling out for help. So it makes sense that she does proceed. And at this point, I was Harkening back to our episode years ago on underground spaces mm. and Lovecraftian horror, mm. the idea that there's all these sort of hidden secret places under the earth, these networks of tunnels and caves with mysterious horrors and so on in there. And yeah. the idea of this really sparked my imagination. And yeah. I, I was trying to think, oh, you know, what weird things is she going to find down there? And the reality of it is intensely disappointing. <laughs> oh well not for me I, I loved it you're really selling it there yeah <laughs> and suddenly a naked deformed figure bursts out of the darkness smashing keith's head against the stone wall before screaming at tess we need to go we need to get out of here we need to get out of here no that's the way out that's the way out come come no please stop it no please stop it we have to come this way tess we have to come this way someone's down i'm not going back to black and now for something completely different <laughs> well and now for something completely different in our show we're going to take a short break and then we'll be back with more about barbarian do you like obscure books of hidden knowledge i know i do the blasphemous tome is a call of cthulhu fanzine produced by the good friends of jackson elias Everyone who backs us gets immediate access to a host of sanity-blasting issues of the tome. Join us at patreon.com slash goodfriendsofjacksonelias. And now back to Barbarian, where we just left Keith getting murdered. Yeah, probably murdered. It looked very murdery by a strange naked figure and Tess witnessing the whole thing. How would it not be murder? <laughs> what else would you call it? I don't know why you're questioning that. Do you think she was trying to give him a little like rub on the head against the wall? I mean, what knocked sense into him? Or no, I, I figured he might have survived with grievous head wounds, but probably not. She burst his head open against the rock wall. <laughs> it was only a gentle burst. Yeah, it's like D six damage, maybe. Okay, I don't know. It was certainly at least a major wound in California. So, a nice, sunny, warm setting as opposed to the cold, harsh climate of Michigan. We meet AJ, an actor, as he takes a call while he's driving. He learns that he's been fired from a TV show because a co-star has accused him of raping her. This is probably the strongest moment of the film, going from that brutal, uh, weird attack underground to suddenly this guy driving along the Pacific Highway, I think. Mm -hmm. It's sunshine, there's music playing on the radio, and just the tonal shift there. That was the point at which I thought, oh, okay, maybe this film does have something interesting to offer. If only it had. Yeah, no, I think this is a really good scene. AJ is a, a great character and a really good performance here. Just him driving along in this car with the sunshine and him singing along to this track. And then he gets this call in the car and he pulls over and just gets this news that he's being thrown out of a TV production or a film production. Leading on from this, he has a meeting with his wealth manager. I mean, who doesn't have one of those? And AJ learns that without income for the foreseeable future and with his impending legal costs, he will be bankrupt within three months. So. He's heading from kind of hero to zero pretty quickly. So he heads to Detroit, okay, to inspect a rental house that he owns. Oh, what are the odds? 
What are the odds? <laughs> yeah, so it brings things together in, a, in an organic way that I found pretty convincing. Preparing to put it up for sale and stave off bankruptcy for a bit longer. Seems like a plan. Yeah, because Detroit properties go for so much, yeah. Well, I mean, he's making an income from it, right? For renting out as an Airbnb, so... Surprisingly so. I mean, he's double booking it. Well, <laughs> his, his people are double booking it, so it's obviously in the band. So AJ arrives at the house where he finds Tess and Keith's possessions there, including Tess's car parked outside. He calls up the agency, or at least one of the agencies, but they tell him that no one is currently staying at the house, despite all this evidence to the contrary. And this is a fantastic scene, which turns mm. this lovely colour. You can almost kind of uh, sympathise for this guy, AJ. Mm. You certainly lose that sympathy by the end of this scene. AJ goes out for a night on the town, meeting an old friend who questions him about the rape allegations. He admits to sleeping with his co-star, but says... She took some convincing. Hmm. She said no and stop, but he denies it was rape. Yeah, took some convincing. That's um, a pretty chilling turn of phrase. Yeah. The following morning, AJ explores the house. Thinking there might be squatters in the basement, he heads down there, armed with a, a knife and a torch, and that's the point he finds the hidden door. He goes through the, the hidden door, finds the room with the camera and the bed and everything. And, you know, you kind of think he's going to experience the same shock that she does, that Tess had previously, you know, his horrific room and, and everything. But no, it's brilliant. <laughs> he's like, in, you can totally see in his head, oh, fuck. Look at all this square footage. And he's on Google, like, can I rent out an underground room? You know, can I add that to the value of the house when I, when I sell it? Does it increase the property value? Yeah. So he's got his tape measure out, measuring the length of the corridor and the width of it and writing it down, the figure in the square footage. And then there's this room. And he just goes into this room and he's like, oh, there's this bloodstained bed. Never mind, just move that over to the side of the camera. Okay, I'll just move that out of the way, just measure it up. And it's totally oblivious to uh, any horror that might have taken place there. I thought that was uh, a very funny scene. It's all those dollar signs in front of his eyes, you see. It's the penalty die on the spot hidden roll that really impacts it. Yeah, I kind of feel I'd, I'd probably have done the same thing. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that probably doesn't speak very well of me, but yeah. AJ then discovers the stairs downwards and excitedly continues measuring all the way down into this corridor, dragging the tape measure along the wall. And he eventually encounters a room with a light on inside. He heads in and the floor is covered with rags and there's an old TV that's playing breastfeeding tutorials. Something pulls the tape measure from his hands. And AJ finally, I think, has a bit of a reality check and starts fleeing down the tunnel. Well, guess what, folks? He's being chased by that naked, deformed figure. And AJ falls into a pit. A metal grate slams shut. And AJ discovers he's not alone down there. Tess puts a hand over his mouth and tells him to be quiet. And now for something completely different. You like saying this, don't you, <laughs> Yes. This is one of the most fun things of the film for me, was that it just smack, different, completely different scene, different tone, yeah. such major shifts. It was great for me. I think that's the film's saving grace. As I said, I think fundamentally it's a pretty mundane horror film and largely devoid of ideas. All it really has to offer is some fairly unpleasant imagery and some pretty bad taste, but it is at least cleverly told. The scene abruptly cuts to an exterior shot of the house from above, brightly painted with a perfect front lawn. And there's some, uh, what was it, sort of 50s music playing, I think. A man, Frank, emerges from the front door and we see the neighbours on their lawns and kids riding bikes. It all seems idyllic. But also that it's got a really weird camera effect. I think it's a slightly wide angle lens. So everything is hmm. just feels out of place and sort of stretched and slightly distorted as if we're following this guy slightly too closely behind as he goes around everything and everything is like brightly coloured. And yeah, it's got a real different vibe to it, this scene. It's very good. Frank drives down to a local store. He hears the news on the radio, which pins us down as being in the 1980s. They're discussing the latest news of what the Reagan administration is up to. 
which is a horror in itself. <laughs> Frank goes into the shop and buys some supplies, apparently to help with the home birth. Mm. Mm. He lays a couple of hints there that, yeah, it's just me. There's no midwife. The lady in the store is really keen to help him because, you know, she thinks that he's a soon-to-be father and uh, she's like, oh, you know, is it St. Such and Such Hospital? And he's like, no, it's home birth. He's like, oh, well, you'll need this and you'll need this and you'll need this really helpful VHS tape on how to look after your baby. Frank follows a woman home from the store and then poses as an electrical maintenance worker to gain access to her house. He goes to the toilet where he unlocks a bathroom window and then he leaves. This is quite a good minimalist bit of storytelling. Mm. We learn everything we need to about what Frank's up to just through implication here. Yeah. Back home, Frank's neighbour informs him that the family will be selling their house as the neighbourhood is going to hell. Frank, on the other hand, says he's not going anywhere. As he carries his purchases into the house, we hear some muffled screams from down below. Yeah, I like the way the film kind of gives you lots of pieces and quite a lot of them fit together quite nicely and things are kind of explained, but you know, not everything. It doesn't use a lot in the way of exposition, but at mm. the same time, it's not a bleak in his storytelling. It's very obvious what's going on. Back in the present, Tess tells AJ down in this bloody pit with his portcullis bar things over them and they're trapped down there. And this is a surprise as well, because Tess is in the pit with him. We mm. think she's probably dead and murdered by this figure in the previous scene, but no, there she is. And she tells him that the naked figure or the mother, as we're going to refer to her, wants them to be her children. So we get this scene of, of this arm comes down through the grate from above into the pit with this like really kind of grotty looking bottle with a, a kind of weird rubber teat on it. A bottle of milk, basically, a bottle of baby milk. And he's like, well, I'm not having that. So Tess willingly goes up and drinks from it. And... Yeah, the mother offers it to uh, AJ again, but he's like, no, fuck this shit. I'm not drinking out of your bottle. The mother's not very happy about this, so she jumps down there and there's a, a kind of a scene of, of, of panic and in which Tess manages to escape and she gets all the way out of the house and meets this homeless guy that she encountered earlier who, you know, surprise, surprise, does turn out to be helpful. So she's managed to get away, but AJ, not so much. He's trapped down there with the mother. That with being forcefully breastfed in the process, which is oh, an absolutely yes. disgusting scene. That is bad. Yeah. 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 In that little room with the, the video and everything. And mm. uh, yeah. Tess wants to go back for AJ, but Andre, the homeless man, says that she should be lucky that she got out as the mother ain't even the worst thing that's in there. Da, da, da. Andre refuses to help and warns that the mother will come out at night and look for her. He mentions, again in a wonderful piece of foreshadowing, that he lives at the nearby water tower. Yeah, I was a bit frustrated by this, the mother ain't even the worst thing that's in there, because I think the film's making a promise here that it then doesn't deliver on. I, I know what it's meant to be implying in terms of you know Frank being the real monster and so mm. on, but... It seems to be promising something even worse, and we don't get anything even worse. I mean, we, we get more backstory and we understand how the whole thing fits together and what a horrible series of things Frank's done, but but I don't know, that, that feels like a damp squib to me. While the mother chases Tess, AJ slips away and explores the tunnels. He follows a thread from a bell hanging on the wall. When the mother catches up to him, however, he finds that she won't pursue him beyond a certain point and retreats back into the darkness instead. Tess, on the other hand, she's walking through the streets of this rundown area of Detroit and she comes across a gas station. I mean, she's looking in a pretty bad state herself mm. at the moment. She's been kept captive down in this cellar for, you know, Lord knows how long. And she goes into the gas station and phones the police who arrive pretty promptly and... She goes up to their vehicle and they're like, take your hands off the vehicle, madam. And then you kind of realise, oh yeah, 
she looks like a homeless person who they're going to be very you know maybe wary of they you know well not wary of perhaps that's the wrong word but they're they're perhaps dismissive of dismissive of if she looked how she looked a few weeks ago before she was taken down there they would probably address her quite differently and also i mean it's worth pointing out that tess is black or mixed race which probably wouldn't necessarily help with the way the detroit police treat her anyway they arrive but dismiss her claims that she was held captive and that she knows somebody you know, aj who's still in danger the cops they, they do go to the house with her and they look around so she's walked all the way to this gas station got in the police car gone back to the house said my friend is in there and they've said that's a locked property there's no evidence there's anybody else in there we're not going to break in on your say so and then they get a call like there's serious stuff happening elsewhere in town so they're like we'll see you later bye and mm. she's like well, you can't leave me here and they they just go which is a great you know we call the the police scene because she's gone all that way got the police come back with them they don't do anything and now it's approaching dusk so she's back where she started but it's worse it reminded me a little bit of that notorious story about jeffrey dahmer where there was a young man a teenager that he kidnapped and was basically torturing in his apartment and the the teenager managed to get away he managed to escape and ran out and he dharma had been drilling a hole in his head and trying to put acid in there basically to try to turn him into a pliable zombie and so this guy had a head wound blood running down his head is dazed and confused runs out onto the street and finds a couple of patrol cops and starts in his confused state trying to explain what's happening dharma comes up and says oh no no you know this is just the kid i'm looking after he's very confused it's all right i'll look after him officers and the police officers hand the kid back to him dharma takes him back to the apartment uh, finishes drilling a hole in his head and kills him great for horror stories not so great in real life yeah I did have this vibe that this was the scene that was written and directed by Scott, because those cops were just the epitome of dismissive and almost antagonistic against our poor, poor, battered hero or heroine. I mean, I have to say, I thought they were very credible. I thought yeah. their reactions were, was, given that area, there are lots of homeless people, drug addicts, and people that the police probably encounter quite regularly. And, you know, they may be dangerous or delusional or whatever they may encounter a lot of difficult people there it's just human nature that they would sort of encounter those people and deal with them perhaps sympathetically but also perhaps as we said dismissively she does actually make a point of saying hey look i'm not a crackhead yeah but they don't even really seem to react much to that because they think she's a crackhead yeah like, mm -hmm. her clothes are ripped she's filthy and she's clearly very very highly strung my complaints about this film relate more to whether or not it succeeds as a horror film, which it doesn't. But in terms of the character stuff and in terms of the structure of it, I mean, it's quite a good bit of screenwriting. At least on the plus side, she does manage to break into the house and get the keys to her car. That's the one advantage that she can draw from this whole situation. Meanwhile, though, AJ finds himself in a bedroom. The floor's covered with empty cans. And an aged and very ill Frank lays on a bed. AJ says he'll go and get help and the police will take care of the mother and that they'll be swarming all over this area in minutes. AJ then discovers shelves of old VHS tapes with such titles as Brunette, Crazy, Very Old, Asian Biter, One Breast. We know, or we can deduce, these are videotapes that was shot in that room with that camera on that yeah. bed of the women that he abducted. He plays one tape labelled Gas Station Redhead that's sticking out of the VHS player. We hear the screams from the TV. I don't think we, you know, we don't see too many details, but we no. can fill it in for ourselves. I think the old guy in the bed signals to, to AJ to, to bring a cabinet closer and, and he brings the cabinet closer and the old guy in the bed, Frank, from the earlier scene, the creepy old guy that was going around abducting women, he gets a gun out of the, the cabinet and we kind of think that he's going to hold AJ 
hostage or, or threaten him or shoot him. But he just turns the gun around and blows his own brains out. And, you know, AJ is kind of horrified by this. I think it's worth saying, as AJ goes in, he does tell the old guy, it's okay, the police are on their way. So I think, you know, the old guy thinks, I guess he figures the game's up and hmm. uh, possibly has been wanting to end himself for a while. That's definitely the kind of impression I got. Because from when I first watched it, I thought, hang on a minute, why mm. does he suddenly commit suicide? But then it's when you watch the scene again and you see the AJ's proclamation of, oh, yeah, the police, everything's going to, they're yeah. all going to be down here. They're, they're going to be crawling over everything. It's, you can see the look in his eyes going, ah, oh, shit, that he hasn't really got any other way out now. Yeah, and I like the way it just kind of subverts your expectations as well, I think. Outside, night has fallen, and the mother runs out of the house. Tess drives her car into the mother, pinning her against the exterior wall. This is a fairly brutal crash, and obviously, obviously that's it, and, and oh. Tess has killed the mother. Film over. Yeah. Roll credits. I think it might have been better if they had. <laughs> Oh, no, there's some good stuff to come yet. Really? AJ takes the gun from Frank's corpse. Like any good investigator, you always take ammo from a dead cultist. Definitely. Tess returns to the tunnels in search for AJ. And probably the only predictable moment that I thought, oh, I'll just wait for it on three, two, one. Of course, she's wandering down the corridors and AJ accidentally shoots her. I thought, mm. I got a script writing <laughs> credit there. It was so blatantly signposted. But anyway, AJ doesn't kill her despite the fake-out moment that she's just staring blankly into the camera, like anyone would be when they'd be in agony on the floor having been shot. I mean, she's badly wounded, right? But... So AJ helps her out of the house, and when they go outside, guess what? The mother's body's gone! What a surprise! <laughs> they head to the water tower, where they go to get help from Andre. So Andre, this homeless guy they met earlier that we've established lives at the water tower, he gives them some exposition, explaining that the mother was born underground and has been living there under there for like 40 years. And, you know, he's talked previously about how she comes out at night and that while AJ owns the house on paper, it's still really Frank's house who never left there. So, yeah, we got this cool situation that I guess, you know, it was probably sold off. I guess this guy, Frank, was assumed dead. And, you know, we don't know. This bit isn't filled in, but somehow the house probably got auctioned off. And uh, AJ, I'm guessing, just bought it cheap, totally unaware that there was all this stuff underground. Part of the timeline here as well, when I rewatched this, I kind of have played this around in my head, that mm. it implies that Frank has been down there for more than just since the 80s doing this. That yeah. Because it makes the comment of, oh, the kids are making copies of copies of copies of copies. That doesn't happen in 40 years. If she's been down there 40 yeah. years, this must be going back further. We learned that Frank used to abduct women, rape them, and then make babies, force them to have babies there under the house. These babies, as you mentioned, start interbreeding. And you know, all of this results in the mother in her nightmarish form. I was intrigued. I mean, you, you, you really seem to like this film, Paul. You're usually the first person to complain about a horror film being tasteless. Am I? You got quite cross with censor about the tastelessness of the murder at the end. Or even just a supporting character whose name reminded you of the name of a real-life serial killer. But this, to me, really is tasteless. Years of repeated rapes, filmed for entertainment... Is that not tasteless? Well, yeah, but I mean, most things that happen in horror films are tasteless, right? Okay, but apparently the tastelessness ruins censor. I mean, I think this is a pretty well-established argument, I would have thought, that, that hmm. portraying mentally ill people as the perpetrators because they're mentally ill isn't a great look, which isn't the case in this film, I don't think. You don't think that applies to the mother? No. Okay. What is it that drives her, then? Uh, well, she's like a monster. I mean, I th I don't think she's not. Um, I think she's kind of she's almost animal rather than person. Yeah, it almost seems to me like she's become a ghoul. Uh, that's kind of how I read it. Yeah, you know, all these underground tunnels and things. Okay, but she's still a person. I mean, isn't Pikmin still a person? 
But isn't that worse? Doesn't that then imply that it's okay to have a mentally ill person as a murderer if they've got physical deformities as well? The only time you really get much of a glimmer of the fact that there might be a human underneath there is one of the very last things that she says. Mm. Well, let's not go into that yet. But yeah, but it's, it's something that you only really get right at the end. Yeah. I mean, this kind of soured me on the film. I really didn't like that aspect of it. I, I'm just uncomfortable with rape as entertainment, even if it's off screen. All right, Tess needs medical help, but they decide to shelter with Andre until morning. He claims that he's lived there for more than 15 years, and the mother has never... Famous last words. <laughs> this is great. This is a great scene. <laughs> oh, we're perfectly safe in here. I've been here 15 years, nothing but... <laughs> right here, we're safe. And she's going to make it through the night. Come morning time, then we can worry about taking her to town. How do you know she can't get in here? Shit, I've been living in this place more than 15 years, and she ain't never came in this motherfucker. Suddenly the mother breaks through the wall, rips off Andre's arm and beats him to death with it. Literally just pulls his arm off and beats him to death with it. Tessa and AJ flee to the top of the water tower and AJ drops his gun in the process. There's some good dialogue from AJ here where he's basically sort of says, I think I've done a bad thing, referring to, you know, the rape that we're told that he carried out. And, and well, he admits to having carried out. And he sort of says... I've done a bad thing. I think that makes me a bad person. But then, he, even then, he turns that around and says, well, actually, maybe I... No, no, I think I'm a good person, but I've done bad things. And he's sort of saying, you know, I'm going to try and make this right and I'm going to help you. But it's like, but immediately, as soon as it comes to any action, those words are just, they're just words. They're just words. None of that is actually true. He totally panics and and just become, just falls into that, you know, least helpful person i watched some of the highlights of this with uh, emily because i she came back the weekend after i'd seen it and i, I kind of gave her a plot synopsis of it and then i said oh what the fuck let's, you, you're probably not going to watch it so let's let's and i just found myself doing a sort of like a highlight reel just fast forwarding through bits of it and picking bits to, to play to her as we sort of went through it it was kind of difficult sort of stop i found myself getting drawn into quite a few scenes but when i played this she's like She's like the Grendel mother from Beowulf. Even that, you know, there's a character's arm that gets ripped off, which which happens to Grendel. I mean, this happens to Grendel, her son. Yeah. I don't think the analogy goes too far, but no. uh, she's kind of like a, a mother figure that is terrifically strong and kind of almost a sympathetic figure at the same time. The mother pursues AJ and Tess up to the top of the tower. AJ thinks he can escape by sacrificing Tess. And he throws Tess off the tower, pushes her off, and tells the mother to get her baby. The mother leaps after Tess, and we see them both fall to the ground. I, it isn't in this scene. We learn in the following scene that the, the mother is broken, Tess is fall. They both seem to die at this stage. And again, this well, not in this scene, but the, the way it's resolved, took away the last of any goodwill I might have had towards mm -hmm. this film. This was a great, dramatic, comedic, perfect moment with that ending that, that would have led to a kind of dark, really fucked up ending. And then just immediately, I mean, you, you see them fall down quite a long way onto hard ground, mm. but apparently the mother has managed to get underneath and break the fall. And I mean, for a start, that seemed really improbable <laughs> just from a logistic point oh yeah of view. yeah totally yeah it didn't work on that level and on a thematic level that moment was possibly my favorite moment of the film and then within 30 seconds they undermine and undo it completely and it was sort of well why the fuck did you bother I just love the fact you got that almost pose of the mother falling in this superhero flying mm. pose <laughs> as she rushes down to car to try and get Tess 
<laughs> I love the way that AJ just figures that the only way he can uh, get out of this is to push his friend off the roof, well, friend, off the roof. <laughs> and, and he does that. We've all seen moments like that in one-shot games. I mean, yeah, that, yeah. Again, that's the bit that appealed to me. And if they had actually had the courage of their convictions and stuck with it, then it would have been a great resolution and a memorable resolution that could have saved what was otherwise a pretty mediocre film. But no, they had to go and undo it. Well, I mean, I don't agree. I think that was a really cool thing that leads to a, a better ending for myself. It led to the most painfully <sighs> obvious ending you could fucking imagine. Speaking of painfully obvious, Tess is alive and in pain. And AJ tries to convince her that he panicked, that she slipped. He couldn't do anything. He can't help but gaslight her. Indeed. And that he's now trying to save her. Absolute fucking piece of shit. Who immediately gets his comeuppance. The mother gets up and literally tears AJ's head apart with her bare hands after putting her thumbs through his eyes. Yes. Yes, a good bit of... uh gory head explosion there and then the mother goes on to tend to Tess Tess is like on the ground now she's like bleeding quite badly she's just fallen off a bloody um water tower so she's in a pretty bad way but she is I think she's on her feet maybe no I think maybe she's on the ground and uh, the mother kind of comes over to her and and consoles her and at this point we really get like I don't think we've really had this before the tenderness from the mother She's holding Tess and she's like, Bubba, Bubba, Bubba. And she's really like caring for her. And Tess reaches out for the gun, which is, uh, you know, lying there on the ground nearby. And, you know, we're not really sure at this point, or I I wasn't sure, is Tess going to shoot herself in the head or the mother in the head? Because the mother has survived quite a lot of shit and, uh, you know, is shooting her actually going to work? So she's just going to take the the maybe easier way out and shoot herself. But no, she shoots the mother in the head. And then she staggers away. And we kind of get an interesting thing they do here in the film where it goes to black. And I think the the credits start to roll, the music starts to play. And then it cuts back to her going down the street. And I thought, oh, is something else going to happen here? And then it goes to black and more credits, I think. And then it cuts back to her. And it's like, no, there is no more. That was the ending. First time I saw that, I thought, oh, I, th- I thought you were going to do something else there. But no, and then I kind of watched it again. I was like, oh, no, actually, that, that works really well. I think um, really? that's just a, a nice ending where, you know, she's left that horror behind. Yeah. It's also that you've got the, uh, the mother when Tess puts the gun to her head. She even mm. says bang, bang, rather than baba. Oh, does she? Oh, I kind of missed that. Yeah, she she knows what's coming, but doesn't do anything to stop it. Yeah, I thought that was a, a touching scene. Yeah, that was really, really good. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> no. Yeah. Not for me at all. Like I say, no. the film's full of bait and switch moments, and that last one at the end was, I think, such a such a cheap one that I frankly didn't give a fuck what happened for the next few minutes. I was, I mean, I was really engaged with these characters, and I thought the performances were yeah i think with, without uh exception were really good in this yeah oh yeah yeah some great acting yeah whenever i kind of flicked into it fast forwarding and flicking through various bits with emily i can tell if if this was on and i was flicking around the tv and this was on i would probably just watch it all the way through to the end again because mm. it's just one of those films that it's just so uh entertaining such good performances yeah it's just a quite a compelling watch as i said i think it's from a technical point of view, it's quite a good film. It's the script writing, or at least the the structure of the script and the dialogue is good. The characters are good. As a horror film, the horror elements of it did not work for me at all, where they're either derived from other much better films or are just sort of lazily and obviously resolved, which is in such a stark contrast to the otherwise clever structure of the film. For example, that whole opening scene with the suspense and Mm. with uh, these two people at this Airbnb and this mystery about what's going on, I think deserves to be in a much better film. That is a a really strong act one, and the rest of the film for me just doesn't deliver on that at all. They're just 
at least once we get past the sudden shift to the initial scenes with Justin Long or AJ, then, uh, yeah, I don't know, it just becomes like a second-rate Rob Zombie film. I mean, I think it works as a horror film because I was horrified by it at, at times. Right. So uh, that's that's the definition of a horror film. And also, I've talked about this before, there are certain horror films that I watch with my wife, Lucy, and she hadn't seen the start of this. And then she kind of came in with a cup of tea and I was like, no, you don't want to watch this one. <laughs> this is not for you. So she went off and uh, did some more looming. Uh, that's working on her loom, not not looming as a, a well, I don't know if that's a verb or not, but um, yes. And then when I did recount it to Emily, I was like, yeah, I'm getting the chills telling you about this. So, uh, you know, this, I, I found it a pretty creepy story. Hmm. There was one thing thinking of the structure and how this was written, because when I looked up the production of the film and to see how it developed, that the writer-director, Craiger, said that he got frustrated at one point, feeling that this was, because it started off as being very much inspired by that book we mentioned, The Gift yeah. of Fear, that it was going on red flags that kind of women should trust their instincts yeah. when uh, in a situation. Because Keith at the beginning is very much petered out as a creepy guy and that yeah. there are flags all over the place. But apparently Craig was getting very annoyed and frustrated with this. He thought this is getting too predictable and just decided randomly at a particular moment, I'm going to insert something that flips this whole fucking thing on its head. And quote, I just wanted to write a fun scene for myself and it ended up being something that hooked me and I didn't know where it was going. And then it turned into a feature film. Just that random... Hey, there's a tunnel in the basement. Boom. Mm. Yeah, cool. That suddenly turned the whole thing into something completely different. Mm. I certainly admire the the imagination to completely change a film's premise like that partway through, or at least change what type of film you feel you're watching. It reminded me almost a bit of Psycho in that respect. Mm. But I just think they could have flipped it into a much better film. I was thinking you could almost try to do that with a, if you're writing a scenario and you get frustrated, think, oh. well, I've got this good opening, but then mm. I've got, it doesn't feel like it's going anywhere. Take a leaf out of Craig's book and just suddenly go on a complete tangent because it makes oh, it, yeah. it makes it memorable, if anything else. I've certainly done that, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I've certainly done that in one or two scenarios. Yeah, I think probably most of us have done that, you know, to have an intro that you sort of present as the, start of the scenario only to sort of get like half an hour in or whatever or part way in and like present a, a different set of characters mm. and for the players it's an experience where you know hopefully they get a bit of the experience you have in this film where oh we thought that was the scenario oh that was just like a bit of intro okay that's kind of cool in my mind, I always sort of categorise it as that line from Fight Club of, uh, ladies and gentlemen, we have just lost cabin pressure. <laughs> also, I thought it was interesting having, or, and not something that we're doing a game, I don't think, but having like one of the main characters with this terrible thing in their background, having, you know, rape somebody yeah. and having them as a character who is quite a, on the face of it, quite a humorous, sympathetic character in many ways as well, in the way they're portrayed. You're superficially charming. Yeah, yeah. Which, as a viewer, it's, that's quite an uncomfortable thing as well, I think. It's not a new thing. I mean, cinema and fiction is filled with superficially charming monsters and psychopaths, mm. and, you know, that's exactly what AJ is. I do quite often, I mean, particularly with pre-gens for convention scenarios, have characters like that, not rapists, because I don't like having elements like that in my games, but um, certainly superficially charming psychopaths and monsters, yeah. Oh, I fucking love those. Also, you've got the good old Cthulhu trope of something nasty underground. Yeah, this does that just great. Because I went into this cold, like all the memes suggested, I was sort of thinking, oh, yeah, we're, we're going to get underground. We're going to find something really weird and cool. It's sort of setting the, all this up so it's really mysterious. And, and, and uh, no, no, it's just a rape pit. Well, I think maybe you'd like got your expectations too high scott i mean I, i've had that with other films where people tell me it's great and then i go and see it with high expectations and that's never really a good thing so i think it's usually better to have 
set your expectations not too high. Hmm. I think the other thing this film does really well is bring a group together kind of hmm. organically, but really effectively. You've got these two individuals renting this house together. I mean, that's a good premise, you know, not intentionally, but accidentally mm. renting a house together. You've got the guy that owns the place then coming into it. You've got the homeless guy that lives up the, you know, a, a random place up the street and they come into it. I think if this were a game, Andre would be an NPC. I mean, he's not got enough screen time that he'd really be a player character. He could be a player character. If it would, you know, if he were a player character, he would play a bigger role, right? I mean, mm. So a good lesson in how you can um, bring together disparate characters. Even you could look at it from the point of view of if this was a one-shot, it's maybe a two-player one-shot and it's sort of you get to the you know the end of Act 1 and it's you turn to Keith's character and sort of say, all right, yeah, um, you know, sorry, your, your guy's dead. Yeah. <laughs> your guy's got no head anymore. <laughs> how do you feel about playing a complete scumbag? Thank you. Thank you. You're listening to The Good Friends of Jackson Elias. You can find show notes for this episode at blasphemoustomes.com, where you'll also find all our social media links. We have t-shirts and other merchandising available at our Redbubble store. If you're enjoying this show, please consider backing us at patreon.com forward slash Elias. Thank you for listening. Well... It is that time once again when we would like to say thank you to people. Thank you, first of all, to you for listening to this podcast. Thank you very much to anyone who has ever backed us. And we have a number of new people to thank by name. Yep, starting off with a thanks to Rurisha. And thank you very much to Andrew Butler. And thank you to Gordon Pauley Jr. And thanks to Chelsea B. And thank you very much to Mike Ostwald. And thank you to Trent E. And thanks to Chris Fairchild. This one's going to sound somewhat ironic or derogatory, <laughs> but trust me, it's not. Thank you to the two-word, no one. And thank you to Richard Ng. And thanks to Eric Coker. And thank you very much to Craig Davis. And thank you to Oshin Murphy-Lawless. And I hope I'm pronouncing that right. As ever, if we are screwing up any of these names, please do let us know and we'll, we'll fix our mistakes. And thanks to Michael David Jr. Thank you very much to Stuart Harper. Aha, and a very familiar name here. Thank you very much to Molly Giffin. And thanks to Hawk Breening. And thank you much to Jay Zala. And thank you very much to the wonderfully named Dododo. And thanks to Randy Snooder. And thank you very much to Darren Kerr. And thank you to Mark Litow. And thanks to Steve Wallace. Thank you very much to Aaron Gibson. And thank you very much to Eldritch Scary. And thanks to Stuart Webb. Thank you very much to Justin B. And thank you very much to the wonderfully named Doran Doran. And finally, thanks to Lorraine Donaldson. And if you've enjoyed the good friends of Jackson Elias, then uh, as we said at the outset, we would welcome you to leave a review somewhere and uh, tell your friends about it. And if you find any underground rooms under your house, then, you know, go on down there with some flyers and tell all those people about it too. <laughs> and if they don't listen to you, rip her arm off and beat them to death with it. Yes. <laughs> We'd rather you didn't beat potential listeners to death. Oh, that's true. Not until they've heard the good word of Jackson. Mm. Just have it playing away on the TV in their nice underground breastfeeding room. Well, they're playing our podcast. No, that's, that's not a good look. Anyway. So that was the film Barbarian from 2022. You've been listening to the good friends of Jackson Elias. Until next time, it's a goodbye from me. And cheerio from me. And a farewell from me. Hello? BlasphemousTomes.com I think if we ended up encouraging people to be beaten to death with their own arm, that should definitely earn a one-star review. It depends on the person. <laughs>